This is a Punch Riot podcast series. This bus doesn't stop at your door. Notes on writing. It's a five-day, five-podcast series exploring advice and ideas about writing and the writing process by authors widely considered to be masters of the craft. Prologue. For several years as a kid, I rode the bus to and from school. Depending on the year and which city I was living in, the bus stop was either nearer or somewhat farther away from my house. But it never stopped at my front door. Whether a little or a lot, I always had some walking to do. Some part of that journey I simply had to go and navigate on my own. That pretty well illustrates my thinking here on how to write well, or at least how to write better. That some advice is better than others and can get us headed in the right direction, or even get us part of the way there. But in the end, we're going to have to do some walking and go it alone. There are some things we just have to figure out for ourselves. Introduction. Most books about writing are filled with bullshit. Stephen King wrote that. Why? Because writing is so simple, it's complicated, and the path to writing well is the same for everyone. We need to read a lot, we need to write a lot, we need regular critical feedback because accurate, unflinching, direct criticism is always better, provided it's honest. And there is no kind of feedback more honest than a rejection letter, except maybe no response at all. This podcast is for people who write, for people who want to write, or for people curious about the process and what some well-known authors who write, or who wrote, have to say about it. And that's all it is. Because writing well, by which I mean creating a written product of value to a reader or a group of readers, is not complicated. It's just difficult for some and nearly impossible for others. This podcast series isn't about putting out some book or pamphlet whose purpose is to generate passive income while you sleep. There's plenty of those out there already. Nor is it to assert some kind of artificial artistic standard by which all other writing can be judged and as sufficiently wise, aesthetically pleasing, or erudite. The world is fully stocked with delicate geniuses as it is. Episode 1. George Orwell on the relationship between style, clear thinking, and clear writing. In politics and the English language, Orwell's point is that unclear writing leads to unclear thinking, which in turn leads to worse writing that propagates even worse thinking, and so perpetuates a never-ending cycle or loop. He expands on this at the beginning of the essay as follows. Now it is clear that the decline of a language must ultimately have political and economic causes. It is not due simply to the bad influence of this or of that individual writer, but an effect can become a cause reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form, and so on indefinitely. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure, but then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. The point is that the process is reversible. Modern English, especially written English, is full of bad habits which spread by imitation and which can be avoided if one is willing to take the necessary trouble. By political and economic causes, what he is really talking about here 
are things like what most politicians say or the things most salesmen or anyone who wants your money might say in order to increase the likelihood that you'll hand over the cash, cast the vote they want, or in many cases, both. He goes on to identify five common flaws and how to minimize them. The idea is not to adhere to some arbitrary standard set by a dead Englishman, but to take responsibility for and control of the words we put together so that we create the best possible result. If one thing characterizes martial artists, woodworkers, and chefs alike, it is mastery of necessary tools and the self-control and discipline and understanding to use them properly to their greatest effect and best result. Here's a quick overview for people who like lists, but I highly recommend reading the essay itself, of course, and reading through his full argument and examples of each problem and how to correct them. Trust me, it's short and it's worth it. Example one of five. Never use a metaphor, a simile, or any kind of figure of speech which you're used to seeing in print. Throw away phrases, which is what one teacher of mine used to call them, such as toe the line, ride rough shot over, stand shoulder to shoulder with. Those phrases are like the billboards you drive by every day and no longer notice. It's like the train whistle that we hear when we move into that house in the country. But after a few days or a couple of weeks, we barely notice it anymore and we sleep just fine. If a word or phrase doesn't add anything, why is it there? And I tend to think of it in terms of a household budget. The main purpose of a budget is to make sure that we can pay all of our bills, hit our financial goals, generally use our hard-earned money effectively with as little waste as possible. And that's what Orwell's trying to get at here because the same applies to our writing. We have a limited number of words, paragraphs, pages to achieve our desired effect in the reader. So the best writers don't waste those. Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do. We've all read articles and books where every other word seemed to be a $2 college word packed full of syllables, but which added nothing of value for the reader. Stay tuned. I don't have an example right here, but I'm about to get to one and uh, it will effectively illustrate the point. We'll move on to number three. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. And one of the things that I always stressed with students when I was a teacher or with writers and clients when I did professional editing was that we almost always use too many words. And we almost always do that because we don't take the time to think through what we're trying to get across and how to do that most effectively. We just want to get through the process as quickly as we can because for most of us, it's not an entirely pleasant process, or even if it is and we enjoy writing, when you've been sitting there for an hour and a half, you just want to be done with it, go grab a beer, go watch a game, go do something. But people's attention spans are not unlimited, especially not today. Sure, one extra word here or there doesn't make a difference. 
but one or more unnecessary words per sentence, especially if they not only take up space, but also confuse the reader or conflict with something that has already been said, that adds up in the course of a paragraph, a page, and a book. And a lot of extra unnecessary words also tends to dilute the impact of what the writer is trying to communicate or create. And that's a very technical aspect of writing, but that's one of the ways that writing gets made better. It's not because I become more brilliant as a writer, it's because I take the time to sift through and to make sure that I'm actually communicating as powerfully and strongly as possible what it is I'm trying to get across. Number four, never use the passive voice or a passive construction when you can use an active voice or more active construction. Beginning writers tend to gravitate to the passive voice. I'm not sure why, but it's either because it sounds more analytical to them or they use phrases that maybe they think sound more intelligent or important. Here's an example. A. Through the examination of these documents, it became clear to the group leader that the truth was being avoided by the eliminating of important details by someone. B. The group leader examined the documents and decided that someone eliminated important details to hide the truth. Example B is much clearer, much more direct, and is generally easier to read than example A. And the reason there is because we're using active verbs and active construction in order to communicate the group leader's action and thoughts. Number five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word or jargon if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Now remember that Orwell explains in this essay his techniques for producing stronger, clearer writing in general. So that's a general principle to follow. There may indeed be times where specialized language is useful or even necessary, such as writing to a peer-reviewed academic or scientific journal, speaking at a conference that's uh, doctors or educators or some other professional group where the audience can reasonably be expected to have a vocabulary in common that is unique to their profession but which outsiders wouldn't be aware of. But in general and in writing for a generalized audience you want to avoid that kind of language and stick with things that the audience is going to be familiar with and not have to take notes on or look up just to get through your sentence. Okay, so Orwell goes on to give an example of how a few of these techniques of, that are often used in modern pretentious writing 
ruin not only the meaning of a passage, but the enjoyment of it as well. And so what he does here is he takes a short passage from the Bible, from the book of Ecclesiastes, and he translates it into something that sounds very similar to what we hear today um, or read today in modern English. So first the original passage. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Now here's Orwell's somewhat cheeky caricature in modern English. Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. Now that's obviously a caricature, but as Orwell argues in the essay, it's not that much of a caricature. And I've definitely read a lot of things over the years that sounded pretty much exactly like that. And chances are good that you have too. In addition to being loaded with a lot of those $2 multisyllabic college words we talked about, it takes a lot more effort to get through that passage and understand it than it does the previous one. And in fact, although each one of those passages is essentially saying the same thing or could be saying the same thing, you get a totally different effect or you know, nuance of the passage uh, you know, depending on whether you read the first one or the second one. So that affects how a reader receives what you're trying to say. And, you know, the first passage uses mainly average, everyday, commonplace words, nothing fancy, nothing, you know, extraordinarily long for the most part. And it's translated into a common, a common vernacular where that second version is loaded with words that obscure more than make clear the meaning of what the author may be trying to say, especially since he uses nothing but those words and crams them all together and creates a big word salad. Now this is a short essay and you can get the gist of it here, but Again, I really suggest reading it because it has a lot of valuable examples and, and, and go, he goes into more depth than we have in this podcast. Another thing to pay attention to is the late George Carlin, the comedian. Uh, he sort of updated Orwell's thinking and arguments for the later 20th century audience. And a lot of his, a lot of his comedy routines contain either segments or sometimes the entire routine is all about the difference between language in the early 20th century, for instance, and then language in the later 20th century. And the, one of the examples that Carlin always used was uh, 
the difference between shell shock, which was the word they used in the early 20th century after World War I, say, to describe the conditions that, uh, the mental conditions that soldiers often found themselves in after a battle or something particularly, you know, terrible that happened to them in the course of, in that case, war. With post-traumatic stress disorder, where not only can that word be applied to a lot of different conditions that may or may not relate to each other, but it also has the effect of really distancing the reader from the reality it's trying to uh, communicate rather than something like shell shock, which is very immediate, very vivid, something that we pick up on uh, without much effort. Okay, so as promised, this is not a course. To get the most out of this, I suggest doing what I used to advise my writing students who were serious about improving their work do. Read Orwell's essay, Politics and the English Language, every day for a week or maybe even two weeks. And then after that, read it once a month until it becomes a part of your thinking and shapes your writing, becomes part of your toolbox for either writing or editing, really. And then for continuing this kind of self-education about writing more clearly and effectively in terms of style, there's a short book out there called The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. And if you're not familiar with it, it really expands on the general things that Orwell touches on briefly in this essay and serves as one of the most valuable references out there for people who write or people who edit. And I highly recommend uh, picking up a copy. It's short, it's cheap, um, but it's got invaluable information in there for getting uh, straight to the point. Okay, to sum up those five principles, one, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print, or really any kind of retread phrase at all. Number two, never use a long word when a short one will do. Number three, if it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. And if you can't go through there and do that yourself, again, hire an editor. Number four, never use the passive voice when you can use the active. And then five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, professional jargon, or any kind of specialized terminology that your general audience isn't going to be likely to already know the meaning of. Be on the lookout for the next podcast in this series uh, where we take a look at Flannery O'Connor's thoughts on writing short fiction and why she thinks books on technique and plot and character development and all that mess aren't all they're cracked up to be. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our subscribers whose subscription fees support the compensation that we give to the writers who contribute pieces to the Punch Riot magazine. Uh, for all Patreon subscribers, written transcripts of these podcasts will be available at the end of this week. And there should be some additional notes and information in there not included in the podcast that uh, will help if you want to study these essays that we're referring to um, in these podcasts by 
Orwell and O'Connor and the others that we're going to get to um, for further study and uh, hopefully those will be useful to you as well. And that concludes number one on style with George Orwell and next up will be podcast number two Flannery O'Connor on writing short fiction. Again, thanks for listening.